It's been a while since we've done a live Eastern Archery podcast, but it's my pleasure to be here at the South Point, of all places, where we're shooting the Vegas shoot, with the man, the myth, the Dave. Dave Cousins. Well, thank you, George. It's an honor to be here. We're at the South Point here poolside, having concluded the first day of the Vegas shoot. Now, this is a rarity. Uh, Understandably, you know, it's not the Vegas shoot that we've grown to all love and appreciate, but we're very appreciative of it. We're here in April. Yeah. Pools are open. Yeah. 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 It's usually a slightly chilly wind out We'd here. We'd be inside flipping cards or uh, or bowling, taking in a movie or whatever. It's a, it's a little different atmosphere this year. It's kind of kind of cool. And may I say that you, you know, coming from Maine, are doing your best to uphold the look of the Maine lobster. So I'm I'm very enchanted by what that glowing orb is in the sky. Some tell me it's the sun. I don't know. I haven't seen it for a while. It's a giant ball of thermonuclear plasma. It's a giant ball of happiness right now. Absolutely. Dave, you are here as part of our ongoing series on archery legends. You are absolutely in that in that list. I know, I know, I know, but it's the truth. You've done so much in our sport. And so I, what I want to do today is look at some of the things that you've accomplished. Talk about some of the stories behind some of those accomplishments and talk about Dave today and what you're doing today with the sport and where you hope to go from here so sure um april 16th of 1977 was a very good year a very good day yep (laughs) and uh that's tomorrow that's uh, as we record that's your birthday yeah it is it is it is and so uh here we are on april 15th and uh you know that so i I will be uh 27 right with uh 17 years of experience exactly (laughs) Because we're all 27, right? <laughs> Let's talk about the start of that experience for a moment. Sure. Going back to um, when you started shooting. Um, like our other legends that we've spoken to, guys like Daryl Pace and Johnny Williams and uh, Justin Hewish, everybody got their start somehow. Most shooters at your level of accomplishment got started reasonably early. Really young. Uh, nearly at the point where it's debatable if I could walk first or have the desire to, to shoot a bow or mimic the movements, the actions of, of shooting a bow throughout things in my environment. Yeah. So do you recall approximately what age you might have been? I, I have no idea. Honestly, I, I have photos of me like running around the house with a coat hanger pretending it was a bow and arrow. Yeah. You know, yeah. at that age. So whatever age that a coat hanger would fit your draw length, you know, I, I mean, at 44 years old, I would say I probably have 40 years of archery experience. You know, competitive experience, maybe 34, 35. Yeah, going through the mnemonics as a kid and, and wanting to be an archer all your life. Yeah, I, I don't know anyone with this kind of background that hasn't, they didn't get their start making a bow out of a, a tree limb in the woods behind their house, you know, a stick and a string, really the basic roots of it. You know? Yeah, I, I did the same. Um, yeah. Probably five, four or five years old, I don't yeah. know. And, yeah, literally taking a stick and a string and maybe possibly having broken some pieces of TV antenna off of an antenna I found. It, at its root, though, it's the it's the instincts of evolution, though, isn't it? It is. You know? You know, we all are driven, I'd say most people listening to this right now, are drawn to the flight of the arrow, to the draw of the bow. We all have that same passion. And yeah. yours started out just as early as a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. 
But you took yours to a level, Dave, and have continued to take yours to a level that is unmatched by most and really by none uh, when you consider your full body of work. And I think for me, the most fulfilling thing about that journey is that it took the same path that everyone goes through that picks up a bow and arrow. It was in the in the yard at the house, locally, regionally, you know, and the spiral just spun out from there. I mean, there are so many people that, yes, they shoot, you know, at their house in their backyard, in their back garden. They go to a club. They go to a local shoot. Maybe they travel a few hours away to go to a regional shoot or a national shoot, and the spiral just kind of spins out from there. You know, it could have been anywhere in that path that, you know, it might have been deviated off of it and I never stuck to it, but the drive was always there, so... And it isn't just one form of archery. You have done really well, if not dominated, at almost every form of the sport that you've tried, at least with the compound bow. I am the only person that has won gold at world archery in every discipline that we play. Indoor, outdoor, field, 3D, World Cup, World Games. Yeah. No one's ever done that. Yeah. And I look back right now, and there was a time when that was very, very achievable, now there are so many talented archers on the men's and women's side of the field that are so good and specialized at certain things that if you're a decent all-rounder, it's going to be tough to come in there and be a competitor with them. And it's going to be tough for them to cross over into another game completely. Your individual world championship at Riom in 1999, along with the team world championship, that was the start that from was... the standpoint of your world-level Correct. That was, well, I had been to the world field the year before in 98 in Austria and Obergurgel and uh, was blessed enough to get a silver medal. But Target Archery 1999 in Rayom in July was, that was the first international target season and double gold. And I, I mean, on that team, I shot with some legends. Terry Ragsdale. Yeah. D. Wild. Yeah, I've seen the photo. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Logan Wild's in there too. You know, I mean, the, the spawn of legends, you know, so. Sure. <laughs> And you know, in fact, uh, we'll try to we'll try to get that photo and put it up on the uh, Eastern Target Facebook yeah. because uh, that is an epic photo. Uh, so I, much so much experience and talent in that one shot. D. Wild and Logan Wild and Terry Ragsdale yeah. and yourself. Uh, uh, Logan had shared that photo on his timeline uh, a few weeks ago, and I had commented. I says, "Geez, Logan, a couple guys in that photo really got old." <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> You know, um, the other thing is, of course, you, you set the world record for target archery at seven, the 720 world record of 712, yeah. which stood for quite a while. Yeah. And, um, you know. In that 1999 season, I'd, I'd shot 12 world records in yeah. that one season. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't just stop there. No. I mean, you went on to win the world championship uh, in field archery in Canberra in uh, 2002. And that was after two consecutive silvers. Uh you won the world indoor in 2003 in Nîmes, and again in 2005 in Alborg, yeah. and again in 2007 in Izmir, Turkey. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, silver in Florence in 2001, silver or bronze rather in Florence uh, in the uh, individual in uh, 2001 as well. Yeah. I mean, that's domination. Yeah, it's been, and the thing when you're in it, you don't stop to drink it in. It's that forward momentum, that drive all the time. You had your eye on the next thing? Yeah, always on the next thing. You know, just riding that, okay, good, accomplished, now moving on, moving forward. How do I apply this process to the next event, to the next goal? 
We, we touched on field archery, but your saga in field archery started, you know, as you mentioned, and then Canberra, 2002, gold medal, yeah. individual. 2010, Visegrad, eight years later in Hungary, yeah. which was an awesome venue. As that was an incredible venue and great courses. Yeah. Incredible weather, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, lots of little... Uh, Piglets running around the uh, the wild boar there all over were, the course. There were a lot of game animals around. Yeah, that was in 2010 in uh, Visegrad, Hungary, and then uh, Obergurgle, as you mentioned, 1998 is really where your saga started with the silver. Yeah. Uh, but Cortina, you also had a silver medal back in 2000. Yep. 2006 in Gothenburg in Sweden. Yep. Uh, silver medal there. The fun thing about Sweden, actually, um, I was just the infancy of us traveling with bow cases that had covers over them. Right. And oh. I always had this underlying fear because when you check in, I know the bag story. tag goes where? It goes on, on the, the handle of the cover. I had a bit of a snag-up connection mishap in, uh, in London, Heathrow, whatever, and um, got to our destination. Out came my roller bag. Great. Here comes a crumpled-up wad of black Cadora. Bow case cover. Yeah. No bow case in sight. So that championship medal, to get that far, to get within millimeters a measuring distance of a final arrow with completely cobbled together borrowed equipment from everyone on my team luckily is very blessed to have uh one of my good friends and a a former hoyt engineer on the team darren cooper yeah and i took his backup bow and it was way too short and we did we put every wrench and every twist and every everything we could do to make that thing run and we we built a rig out of it and just went for it Bronze medal in Wales in Cardiff uh, back in 2008. Yep. And then again, bronze in 2012 at Val d'Isere. Um, Europe's been good for you. I like me some Europe. I love me some. To me, field is, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but it is the ultimate game of games. Yeah. It compiles everything. Yeah, it is are, the full archer. We are going to get into that. But before that, um, let's look at target archery. Yeah. Which always was not at 50 meters. I mean, we no. used to shoot, you know, the FIDA. We used to shoot 90 meters of football field away. Yep. Yeah. So that started with uh, world championships in uh, 1999, your gold individual championship in Rio, your team championship in Rio as well. And then 2003, New York City, a very memorable event. Yeah. You know, the uh, team gold medal there. Uh, Madrid, the following world championship in 2005, another memorable event. Yeah. And then Ulsan in Korea in uh, 2009. And, uh, again, another memorable event. I got to spend time with you at each one of those. It was yeah. a great privilege, and I got to see you in action at each one of those because I was fortunate enough to be able to, to be the announcer for those things. So I got to watch every single one of your arrows. And, um, you know, the individual silver in New York City in, uh, in 2003. I know, I know what that meant to you. I know. Yeah, that was a little bittersweet. And I think some of it, you know, hats off a nod to Clint Freeman. You know, I, I had bested him at home the year before, you know, so it was a bit of a, a bit of a bummer. Um, but then again, I was, I mean, I was just focused on, on the there, the now. We got team gold to get individual silver. Hopped on a plane, didn't even go to the closing banquet. You know, we did the medal ceremony, drenched in champagne, whisked away to JFK via like police and local authority escort. Because we had a tight flight to make to get to another event all yeah. the way across the country in Darrington, Washington. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was uh, hell-bent for leather, you know, to get from one event to another. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, there were some crazy times in there. There were there was a decade or better where I would run and do 25 majors in a year, which meant 30 to 35 weeks a year on the road. Yeah. Uh, 2001 World Games, Akita, Japan. Tell us uh, 
Was that one of your? I mean, one of your first trips to Japan at that time? No, um, you'd been no that wasn't one of my first trips. I'd been there a handful of other times yeah. for organized events with yeah. uh, with uh, different dealers, distributors, etc., and, right. and hosted by uh, archery associations and some of the universities to do talks and stuff. Yeah. There, so yeah. But one of your favorite destinations, right? Yeah, no doubt, one of my favorite destinations. But the nice thing about Akita Japan 2001 World Games, um, besides winning, well, the fact it was it was my first international level world field win right because it'd been bridesmaid bridesmaid and then gold yeah against the swedish guy who had vet there had been two other swedish guys that had beat me before and i'm like no it ends now and then you know then we went on the next year to win yeah. to win the world championship so basically a, dynastic after that yeah yeah, yeah and then again in uh World Games competition. You and I were on the same team back in 2005 in Duisburg, Germany. Duisburg, Germany. Yeah, that was a cool event. That was a cool event. Super cool. That was kind of the beginning of the, and I don't want to offend anyone with world archery, but the beginning of park archery. Yeah. No, it was urban archery, it right? It was very urban. It was. The finals were literally on a street. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a purist, it's kind of the dummying down of it. But I can understand it makes us more watchable. Spectators loved it. It makes us more watchable. It narrows the degree of separation, which for me as a as a, a purist and a competitor, I'm kind of disappointed in that. But what makes a good event is good competition. Yeah. And it was. Yeah. There's no doubt that uh, we had a great gallery of people following us, even in the regular field course oh, yeah. in Duisburg. Yeah, on the field course. And that's where I shot the 720. The first one at international at world level competition still right. yet to be done. Clean score. Yeah, and and that's this all is on before the, the six ring, folks. If you, you and know. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Chris White had mentioned it to me. He's like, "Hey, look back at that Duisburg scorecard and look at the one from Akita." He's like, "Dude, your X count, and Akita, you shot sixty three X's at a seventy two, half of which were unmarked distance." Yeah, and the but the marked round was just as good, which was which is kind of mind boggling because forever yeah, there was around. a trend where the marked round was traditionally a lower score. Well, yeah, because you're shooting another ten meters yeah. on. And average. I I went out on the marked round and shot that clean three sixty with sixty three X's. I mean nine down, off of uh, well, what's a perfect score in a field round now? I no, I don't know because the math I can't do the math so anymore. So many maths right now. X is six, right? So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it. Need a calculator. I think it's, isn't it 432? I think you're right. Yeah, 43. So that's a 421 mark. And then then roasted some really nasty, nasty round, like 425s marked and unmarked at U.S. Nationals later on. Yeah. yeah. So looking at that body of work. Yeah. 3D archery comes in there as well. Uh, yeah. Winning the individual world championship at Sassari. In 2013, yeah. What um, what inspired you to shoot that one? I went there with one goal and one goal only. It was the last one I needed to kind of fulfill the legacy, you know, the crown to get All every jewel. Five titles to get every one of them. All five discipline yeah. titles. I because we didn't have us trials, we didn't have a slug, we didn't have anything. I contacted the office USA Archery and said, you know, I want to go to this. What do I have to do? And they were hung up on funding. I says, I don't care. I just need. I just want you to do the paperwork. I just want to go to the thing, represent the U.S., etc. We finally got that breakthrough, and then I dedicated myself to studying, mastering, learning the way that World Archery played their specific game of 3D, and then top it off with, we're going there. I'm going there to shoot targets at unknown distances that I've never laid eyes on ever before ever um, I went on the website 
SRT Targets is the uh, the manufacturer. I printed off on photo quality paper every single one of the targets, and I studied them like flashcards to learn the body lines on them, the way that the animals were turned, just their camber, you know, of 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 the of the body where the plug was located just learn the hairlines the paint lines and stuff you know and and i didn't know if i was studying information that was going to help me or not because i mean i'm taking photos off a website you know and you if you've ever been in production and anything you get you know there's variances sure one you know maybe the 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 paint dots aren't quite in the same place as the other one you know so it was just through studying that and then just the full discipline of doing nothing for the majority of my time except judging distance by eye countless hours monotonous hours that is a level of commitment and desire that most people never muster the interesting thing is when i got there to the venue to the hotel um you know yeah sure we went to the practice field check the marks shoot the bow get loose etc has the equipment traveled well have i traveled well great is everything still calibrated great back to the hotel everyone's sitting by the pool or they're by the bar or in the lobby, you know, doing what you do, you know. Um, I took my rangefinder, and every day I went across the street to a park that was right next to the beach, and I had my good friend and roommate with me, Ruben Ochoa, yeah. from the from the Mexican team yeah. down there, and also the president of Solo Arquera, a nice shop down there. Yeah. And uh, him and I, I dragged him along with me, and we judged yardage every night, every night. I used to do the same thing. I would I would walk around. I had a, uh, a range finder, and then I'd look at something. And I'd go, okay, using the owl technique. I yeah. figured it out at 54 meters, let's say. Yeah. Then, using gapping, I'd figure it out to another. You know, and then I'd shoot it with the actual laser. Yeah. And as you do that, it becomes natural. You start looking at stuff, and you go, okay, that's how far this is. That's how far that is. Because that's the only thing I could do, having never laid eyes on those targets, and there was not a practice range of them. We just had field faces on Edgerton butts. Yeah, it's not like Nothing. the ASA guys it's, that can buy the whole array of Delta McKenzie targets. Or go to an ASA shoot and they have a practice course you can shoot. There's right. none of that. Right. So it was just purely ground judging. And that was great. We got on the course. There was a bit of uneven terrain. First target. and get up there. I'm drawn like number one to shoot it. And in that format at the time, we shot two arrows per target. So you got nobody else to follow. I got nothing. It's all, this is all on me, but that's what I had prepared for. And I, I ground judged it. I kind of looked at the animal. I come up with a number, spun it down, made a good shot, dead center 12. I was like, okay, don't have to do anything for the second one. Rattled my first arrow. I was like, all right. And that's the way it stayed for the majority of that event. They were tight, tight, tight. That whole story, in a nutshell, gives us one example of what it takes to be a champion in this sport. What else have you done, mental game-wise, would you say, to get to where you are? Well, I think another big thing that comes in slightly before that is failing. Many, many, many times. Uh, many, many different aspects of this, which helped to fortify a lot of my mental approach, to help me filter through and get to what is, what's important, what's necessary, things you can worry about, things you don't need to worry about, things that are in your control, things that are not in your control. And my mental approach is very much, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a stick and a stone. I'm going to hit it with a stick, and if that doesn't work, I'm going to hit it with something harder. Uh, you know, just the, the brute force application. It's not very touchy-feely. It's, you know, visual. what do I want to do? Visualize the task I want to accomplish. What are some fundamental things I have to do in order to accomplish that? And then after that process, asking myself two very, very deliberate questions. First of all, what did I do well during that shot? What will I do better during the next one? Because the first question does what? And a positive light reinforces what I'm doing well, what I've mastered, the right direction I'm going. It builds confidence. It builds a positive self-image. It elevates you. It expands your comfort zone. The second question I ask myself very deliberately and very distinctly worded, what will I do better? Positive reinforcement, goal setting. It gives me new pieces to plug in to that next shot or pre-shot routine or practice I'm going through. And it is just really looking at it very matter-of-factly like that. What did I do well? What will I do better? It's a fairly hard-nosed approach. One that I'd say, you know, is both realistic and hard work because you just talked about partly an iterative process. That means a lot of failure comes into play. It is the most physically exhausting and mentally exhausting aspect of it. The days that I have achieved the greatest for me personally have been the days where I've had to dig the deepest and I am a rhythm shooter by nature. I love to shoot in a nice rhythm. I get the ball rolling and just keep it rolling and before you know it we're done we're there we cross the finish line. Um, on days where that's not working it is a brick by brick process and I hate building brick by brick. We all want instant gratification, as do I. But to get past the nature of being human, that is the most physically and mentally demanding thing, but the most rewarding. One aspect of this, though, is the changes in our sport in the last couple of decades to make things more appealing for spectators. Uh, I suppose that there's a parallel here between your example of being a rhythm shooter mm -hmm. and having to go brick by brick when we consider shooting an end of six arrows versus head-to-head -head competition. Yeah. yeah. How did you make that adjustment when so many people have not been able to? It was a matter of, of having to. It really was. And sometimes, be honest with you, one arrow is really easy to shoot. If sure, you, I can shoot shoot-off arrows all yeah, day long. Yeah, you can shoot shoot-off arrows all day long, you know. It, it is almost using your qualification arrows or your ends where you're allowed more arrows as a tool. And if you can get past the focus, the emphasis on results, and just, for me, shoot timing and rhythm, and then take what you've learned into that one arrow alternating every 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah that's the key. So, you know, that really gives us an entree to discuss the Dave Cousins shot process. And so, if you don't mind, walk us through how Dave Cousins shoots an arrow today, step by step. Right. Well, one thing you need to understand is that the shot, even for me, is constantly evolving. And the reason being, I would love to think that we as humans, and me especially, could do the exact same thing every single time however the varying levels and degrees of arousal or input from your environment alter how you think about time 
alter how you think or feel about strength. Um, it alters your breathing. It alters everything about you physically. And we do our best to block that out, but we really do a better job at dealing with it, working with it. So to me, I, I really believe in a term that I've coined and I call it a shot vocabulary. You know, there are a handful of different things that I'll emphasize on from one moment to the next that vary from shot to shot to get the arrow from point A to point B, you know, point B being, you know, the middle of the middle or, or catch a piece of the middle. Um, but that does vary some, but saying that is a bit misleading to the average archer because we're talking about elite level fundamental stuff that we are, we are diagnosing at the highest of human capability as far as brainwave speed and physical action and reaction for the average archer it really starts with some of the basic building blocks of fundamentals and that's where I built my shot uh, I'm not an aimer for me all the aiming is done with my eye aiming is done with a picture of what my sight can look like at its best or at its worst to get the desired result is that a mental image or a physical? it's a mental image it's a mental image and it's reflected in what I see physically you know it's like if I see a certain amount of not only movement but the speed of the movement the tempo of the movement the range of it if i see that movement that fits those parameters for me it's permission to keep going keep exploring the physical aspects of of executing you know building resistance on the front half engaging the back half engaging your release aid you know your breathing etc things like that so um for me i've never been an aimer i'm a really physical shooter as far as how i think about how i engage the bow i you know, if you, for me, I talk about a lot, if you imagine your, the strength in your shot as a dial or a tachometer, and that needle has to get to like a level of 10 or like 10,000 RPMs for your strength to be right for the shot to fire, most people typically will draw back and they'll stop just below that breaking point, okay? Just below the threshold of the strength they need to know, they know they need to have to make the shot leave. They'll engage the target. They'll see an area of movement and a speed of movement that they're happy with if the arrow were to leave during this type of movement and speed of it, that they would get the desired result, so then they'll keep going. So then they start to apply strength, whether it's in the front half, the push, pull, twist, squeeze, curl your toes, wiggle your ears, whatever it is. When you start to push on the fat part and pull on the skinny part to get the arrow to leave, the sight's gonna move. When the sight moves, a lot of people get hesitant. They're like, okay, I see a speed and or a range of movement that I'm not comfortable with. I believe my chances of getting the desired result are diminishing. I will lessen my level of engagement. Now, some of this is a subconscious process, oh, it is. right? It's very subconscious. And, and, you know, so in this process, this start, stop, engaging, re-engaging process for the average archer can happen a half a dozen times during a single arrow. Yeah. Sometimes it works out. Everything's as balanced, good. Sight sits there, pop, off it goes. Great. Move on to the next one. You know, for me, to combat that, I've always been more of a physical shooter and less of a visible visual shooter. I'm not a big aimer. Um, when I draw back and settle into my shot, I'm loaded up in my body beyond the amount of strength or energy I need to get the shot to break successfully. And that is a method of, like, overtraining my body. It's like when a batter is in the on-deck circle and he's got the, the ring weights on his bat. And he's swinging that thing around. 
you know, he's overtraining those muscles, that range of motion. Sure. That whole process. You know, so when he goes out there with his regular, his, his hitting bat, or even his club, his golf club, you know, it's a totally different deal. You know, he has that swing. So I'm building that swing before I ever engage the site. Yeah. So that when I engage the site, my body knows how to aim under load, under resistance. And we work together to balance each other out. It's a resistance type system. And then stabilization comes into play with that. I shoot a stabilization system where the more resistance the bow puts into me, the more I put into it. And we work together to dampen oscillation while we're progressing towards execution all the time. Very similar to what you do with the Olympic bow. Certainly no different. We get away with a lot, and we have a lot of different theories and philosophies with the compound that I don't necessarily agree with because we have let off. You know, recurve bow on the men's, the upper end of the men's, you're pulling probably in the neighborhood of 48 to 52 or 3 pounds, and that is what you are on on your fingers, and you're engaging the sight, you're engaging the target, and you're going, going, going because you can't really stop. You can't stop and have good technique. Why is it any different with the compound if you're pulling 60 and holding 17 or 18 pounds? You know, we have this illusion that steady is better. I really prescribe to the fact that continual motion is better than a resting motion or being steady. And looking at it from a practical standpoint, some bows don't respond well to no. being let down slightly and pulled again because of, of all the friction, the hysteresis in the system. Correct. And certain types of, of walls or back end on some bows don't necessarily fit this style. Um, you know, and, and I know for the average person, they, they pick up a, a bow and, you know, it draws back super smooth and it stops dead rock solid and has a lot of let off. And they go, wow, this feels really great. You know, I'll take it. And they ask them, how's it shoot? I don't know, but it feels great. And that's not a direct deception through the design of bows. It is to create a better customer experience. And at the end of the day, if a bow draws back smoother and stops solid for you, when the shot goes off, it feels like dunk, feels like nothing, like a cloud. That's going to be a bow. Probably a lot of people are going to enjoy shooting. Yeah, on the on the physical feel end. Yeah, yeah, on the recreational end. But you know, we the have question to look is at, what happens on the mental side. Well, I mean, we have to look at it. The majority of the people, you know, they're out there shooting sticks at the circles. That's their hobby, their getaway. A very small slice of us are out there at the elite level, competing for a national team, and even fewer as a profession. And, you know, it's no different than any other industry in, in the racing industry or the bike industry or even in the, in the, the gun and sh practical shooting sports industry. You know, you, you can't go buy Jeremy McGrath's Honda. You know, you... No. <laughs> you know, and, and the list goes on. Even, and you could, you could reiterate it in the, uh, in the MotoGP world. You know, you can't go buy Rossi's bike. No. You it's can't. It'll kill you. You're not, sure. you're not equipped to handle it. No. So the same thing with our bows. So, you know, so you can go buy these things that are designed and inspired by, you know, these great talents and individuals, and it's going to give you a good experience first and foremost. You know, I bet if most people had to shoot my bow, they'd be like, how in the world does he hit anything? Well, I mean, me and that bow are a machine, you know. It's, it's, I've, modif I've modified myself and matched myself and it to me and, you know, so forth. We talked about your world archery experience, but I think we probably should have brought up in the same vein what you've accomplished on the national level. If we were to look at all the national titles that Dave Cousins has, it's on the order of 40. Yeah, it's, it's 40, north of 40, something like that, yeah. 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 Um, just a, a body of work. When are you going to write a book? No, see, that's a challenge for me. I have always said, for me, uh, the show is better than the book. 
and that is what's led me to uh that's what's led me to share you know my story through speaking engagements through seminars through direct coaching yeah you know um i guess it would come down to a matter of getting with the right person the dave cousins show then the Gabe Cousins show. For, for for the book, it would come down to getting with the right person, you know, sure. and, and capturing all those ideas and filtering through them and, you know, yeah. trying to source and recall, recall certain events that might be a little fuzzy. <laughs> so. But the thing is, you're, you're not at the point yet in your career where you need to start looking back. You still got... I'm still going. A lot I mean, going on. I mean, just last season, I won an indoor World Cup event, and people were... At the onset of it, like, oh, come on, he's washed. This isn't happening. This and isn't. then you drop a clean score on the thing. Yeah. And then, well, in the qualification rounds, at, at the events that I shot for the Indoor World Cup last year, aside from the one in uh, Lux, my qualification scores were on par with anything I've shot in the last 20 years. I mean, like Rome. 598s. Yeah. I mean, that was the world record when I set it in 1999, which stood for 13 years later. So here's a guy that is... 21 years later or more still dropping the same scores he shot when it was the world record and doing it time and time again so why stop what's making that possible from the standpoint of i mean physically you really don't look a whole lot older than 20 years ago i think i look better now if you look back is there a dorian gray photo up in your attic somewhere (laughs) i mean what's the deal man good well uh, you know i just um i don't know i think just a my mental makeup keeps me young. I'm going to say, attitude-wise, maybe experience has been really good for you. Because these days, you're as pleasant a person to be around and as much fun to be around as anybody. You were back then, too. Well, but, I look but at you it. Were, you're, you were a lot more edgy at times. Very intense. Yeah, very intense, intense very edgy. Is a, okay, intense is a better word. What I have learned over these decades is... The more you internalize that and hold it back until it's ready, oh, it's so much more effective. It's it's staggering, bewildering when you've reserved, you've been calm, you've breathed, and, you know, now we're going to rage and we're going to fully apply this. And but I'm you're applying s- it where it belongs. Yeah, and I'm going to smile the whole time, and it's going to leave people going, how, how, how? Dave, <laughs> you're you're obviously having a little bit of fun. I'm enjoying it. I, I definitely am. It's really good to see because, you know, I think there were there was a spell of years there when people were wondering if you were having fun, and now you're definitely having fun. Well, you you really is, seem comfortable in your own skin right now, and I think that's really nice to see. That's a coming of age for anyone, especially anyone in a profession. When you hit that quarter century mark and doing something, I mean, you know what you need to be worried about. You know what you don't need to be worried about. And the stuff that other people may try to bring to you for you to worry about, you can kind of see through a lot of the clutter. Be like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to sweat that. You know? Yeah. And I think that uh, another aspect of, of things is your overall life. You, you know, it's not just archery. You do spend a fair amount of time pursuing other things. I'm, I'm through and through in my DNA a competitor. And it's through my exploration in other competitive venues, be them shooting sports and other things, that have actually made my regular job much, much easier. 
um, one of the things I cite quite often is my love of competitive bass fishing. Right. That's what I was. That's what I was driving at. And the nice thing about that for me is, it's a competitive event and atmosphere, even though it may, you know, at the time only exceed to the regional and national level right now it's not at the professional or semi-professional level but for me it's a place to go be in a competitive moment do something completely against the grain and not have anything hanging over me if you fail or succeed mm-hmm. a chance in a competitive moment to express a different approach to utilize a different vocabulary in a competitive moment because so t- all too often as archers, we are in that robotic box we put ourselves in. I must do the same thing every single time, all day long, to achieve the same results. And yes, at the rudimentary fundamental level, that is very, very true. However, when we ascend to the elite level, you have to be able to diagnose all these things on the fly and not be afraid to make subtle changes. Because at the end of the day, let's look at the Vegas shoot here. There's only one person that wins the Vegas shoot. On Monday, nobody knows who took second or third. Nobody knows who took 30th or 40th. There's only one Vegas champion. That's it. So why would you not want to come into this or any competitive event with the mindset where I'm going to make adjustments to get the desired outcome? If doing the same thing over and over again is not getting results, guess what? You're doing the wrong thing. Or your expectations are not in alignment with your abilities. But having that, another competitive environment to do it in, it, like I said, it's permission to go out there and fail. Who cares if I fail? You know, you got the experience of not being afraid in the heat of the moment to make a change. Which falls back on what we started with, your iterative process, mm. right? The other, you know, the old Einstein quote about the definition of an insanity being repeating the same thing over again and expecting different results. Correct. But, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's bass fishing or shotgunning. Clay shooting, yeah. Or shooting bows and arrows. Throwing horseshoes, doesn't matter. Yep. All of it. The same iterative approach has been applied, and it's what works for Dave Cousins. It is, but with, you know, don't be afraid to make adaptations to it, too. And an adaptation may be as simple as, I'm going to change the rate of my breathing in this 10-second countdown to going to the line from what it has been. And through that change, sometimes it's only just focusing on what you're doing because you'd you'd lost a grasp of it. Um, you know, uh, another thing I do almost daily at home, uh, when I get up in the morning, first thing I do, I start my day with a, a fresh ground Kona, dark roast, finest coffee on earth, French press. They say it's bad for your cholesterol. I don't care. It tastes wonderful. I don't believe it. I think it's, it's yeah. good for your cholesterol. I, I take next, that. Next month, they'll tell you that. I take that and I go sit in my spa every morning. I don't care if it's minus 40 or it's 110. I'm in the spa every morning, and what I do in that spa, um, I float, I breathe, I visualize, and I project. And breathing for me, it is a way to center myself. It's a way to conjure up how I would arrive in a competitive moment, being more aware of everything because adrenaline makes you hyper aware of all of your senses. 
you're breathing, your heart rate, your hands are sweaty, you see more, you hear more, you're more aware. Um, visualizing my shot routine, visualizing scenarios, projecting. We've been here to the South Point for years now shooting this tournament. I know what it looks like in the arena, in the ballroom. I know what the carpet looks like. I know what it feels like. I know what the lighting looks like. I know what it smells like. I know what the sound of the arrows are like when they hit the bale. I'm projecting myself to that atmosphere so that when I get there, it's nothing new. For a lot of years, uh, world field archery events would have test events. You know, hosted by the organizers, it would be a full year in advance. It, would be, it wouldn't be on the same courses. It would be in the same area or same town, you know. And I would go there to gather information so I could project, so I could train better. And that's, that's basically one thing, that's one key thing that I do every chance I get when I'm at home. I, I utilize my coffee time and my spa time to breathe, visualize, and project. Yeah, you're, you're meditating, you're visualizing, and you are performing a mental exercise. And the spa is just a way to distract me from the mental weightlifting of all that, to set a time on your schedule and say, okay, from 10 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., I'm going to visualize. That's a tough, that is a... No, it would be very hard to do. That's that's tough. But you found a way to make it work in your daily life. I found a way to kind of trick my brain that this, let's get, I'm going to get in the spa, and this is your trick to be able to do that. Sure, sure. That's brilliant. Going from here, tomorrow's your birthday. Tomorrow you're shooting another Vegas round as we speak, and uh, you've got lots of archery still in Dave Cousins. As much as I want, I reckon. Yeah. So what's uh, what's on your agenda for this year, and what do you got in mind? Well, one thing I kind of did coming into uh, 2021, I realized with a lot of our indoor indoor events being modified or canceled just because of the global pandemic, etc. Um, certain local, uh, state, and federal regulations and things all over the world that we're not going to have as many opportunities. So what I did was embrace the opportunity to get out and share my knowledge again, Yeah, which is something I hadn't done for a long time because I was busy working on me. Yep. You know, and, and my career has gone through phases where I've taken the time off to work on me, build me, you know, go out, compete at a high level, and then take time off to come back, share those experiences and then cycle back into going to compete. I'm now once again in one of those cycles where I've gone out and I've started to share this knowledge, started to share my experiences, tell more of my story, and and provide more of my influence to help people really enjoy this game that is their passion, their pastime. And so specifically, you've organized seminars. Correct. And you're traveling around the country doing these seminars, explaining the sport, giving people their their first-hand Dave Cousins stories and experience yeah, and making shooters and coaches out of your experience that you've Correct. developed. Correct. Sharing my influences to hopefully, I mean, my biggest goal, like when I started, the access to information was very limited. Now you, we all have information at our fingertips. I mean, if you're listening to this, this now, I mean, you have all the information at your fingertips, but how do you sort through it all? There's a lot of information and conflicts out there. There may be information that's delivered in a way that doesn't reach you. You know, so my job and my goal is to go out there and kind of clear away some of the clutter and get to the fundamentals of what's really important and what's going to make you more successful. At the end of the day, you're giving some things back to the sport by doing this effort. I would say that, you know, uh, you're 
paying forward some of the things you've learned over the years. It's kind of the final stage of it, isn't it? You know? No, not really, because well, I, 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 you can do that for a real long well, time I mean, and still be highly competitive. Yeah, yeah, but it, it is, you know, as you as you round the circle as a, as a yes. competitor, yes. it's it's one of it, it's one of the most rewarding, and it is the beginning of the closing stage of it's it. It's the cool part. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all of it's cool. Standing up there. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't cool. Hey, Dave, every time I've seen you standing up there in your USA team uniform, making us all proud and, and being proud, I think, you know, that's that's one aspect of an archery career. What you're doing now is another aspect of that career. They're not mutually exclusive. No. No. It's. I mean, it's that's the cycle of a professional in anything. It is the building of something, the sheer grit, determination, sourcing, whatever you have to do to get where you want to go. Ride that wave, you're accomplished, you ascend the ladder, you create a space for yourself, you help develop tools that make what you do easier, you share those tools, you share that technique, you watch others elevate through your teachings or through your influence, then they eventually push the bar. They get you back out. You come back out of the cave, you know, take your professor's hat off, and now it's time to put the gloves back on. And you go out there and you, you level up. And then you go out there again and you share. Inevitably, you just do because we're all excited to share something. We've accomplished something. We want to tell a story. You go out there and you share things and it brings the level up again and again. And other people do the same thing. And it just fosters this real organic energy that makes everyone and everything better. I got to say having known you for as long as I have, I'm seeing a very, very balanced and confident Dave Cousins right now, and it's nice to see. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your experience with our listeners. Well, I really appreciate this opportunity. I am awestruck and truly gracious and grateful to be considered one of the legends in this sport. It, it I guess no one ever says they're a legend. Other... It, it Other has, people put that has, on you. <laughs> it has to come from somebody else. You can't hang that around your neck. And I still, like, I still don't fully comprehend it because, I mean, I'm still going. Yeah. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think I was going to win. You know, me and 250 other guys, Yeah. we all got on the plane saying we're going to win this sucker. Yeah. But that's great, you know. But how many of them have 18 pounds of World Archery hardware hanging in their house? Uh... <laughs> Funny thing about that, I'll make a little segue. In the way you mentioned that, that's great. Um, I'd recently done a remodel on my like my offices and my shooting space and stuff like that. And all of my World Archery hardware is currently in a, a plastic tote. And last, it, it's in on the floor in the corner of my office shamefully. And I truly apologize to World Archery and everyone else that these awards haven't been better honored in this new space. I'm, believe me, I'm getting to it. Uh, the box weighs 24 pounds. See, I wasn't that far off. I no, underestimated I, I, it. I, since your data there, I've added six more pounds of, of gold. So, I see. yeah, it's it's shameful. But I think if there were ever a catastrophic event at my home, I think that's probably the second thing I would grab. The first would, would be my boat. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think we're going to leave it there. But this will not be the last time we talk, uh, Dave. I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with you again later in the season and uh, just following along as Dave Cousins, legend of the sport, continues to, to write history 
Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, George. And happy birthday. Thank you as well.